Join me, Dr. Cathy Weston, for my podcast series, Get a Grip, brought to you by Tooled Up Education, the home of evidence-based tips on parenting, family life and education. In each podcast, I help unpick some of the trickier questions relating to how we raise children today. How do we talk to children about mental health? How can we make sure our children engage safely with the digital world? Whose responsibility is the mental health education of our children, teachers or parents? These podcasts get me talking and you thinking. I've reached out to today's thought leaders and main researchers in this area and asked them their views on the areas where we need to get a grip. Dr. Vanessa Kurdi is a clinical psychologist and research fellow in psychology at the University of Reading. Vanessa has experience helping children, adolescents, parents, families with a range of psychological or relational difficulties in her clinical practice. Through her research, she aims to better understand the impact of certain teaching and parenting practices on children's school motivation engagement and well-being. She's specifically interested in how adults demonstrate empathy towards children, support their autonomy, provide structure and create warm and close relationships with them. So a very warm welcome to you, Vanessa. Hi, thanks for having me. Just reading your bio, you and I are passionate about exactly the same (laughs) things. And this podcast is not going to be long enough to fit in all the things that we want to talk about. But I know that something that really struck me that you're interested in as a researcher is that relationship between teachers and pupils and in my talks I'm always talking about it as a protective asset it's something we need to pay attention to that is enormously important for children's well-being so tell us as much as you can about that lovely interaction between how school staff and pupils but what happens in that interaction that is so beneficial to how young people might feel and behave Yeah, I think the relationship aspect is, like you say, fundamental. It's extremely important. I think we can just think about our own schooling. When we were younger, if you were in a classroom with a teacher you really enjoyed and liked, then you were probably more prone to, quote unquote, behave properly or listen or participate. And if you can compare that to a classroom where you didn't like the teacher or something was wrong, maybe you didn't want to participate, didn't do your homework as much or just didn't enjoy what you were doing. I come from the self-determination theory perspective, so there is a lot of emphasis on the social context, so those those relationships in the school. I can tell, maybe I can do a little detour, talk about it a a little bit. So the self-determination theory says that all humans have basic psychological needs. You can think about it like basic physical needs. You need to drink and eat and sleep, but for those basic psychological needs, you need to feel autonomous. So you have volition over your life, some agency, can you choose or behave according to what you believe in or interested in or value. You also need to feel competent. Do you know what to do to get to those goals you want to attain or to avoid certain outcomes? And you need to feel, the last one is relatedness, so connected to other people who care for you but for whom you also care. So you have significant people in your lives, you have those relationships established, and you feel you can contribute to them. So I don't know if you can see from all of these needs, they can really be fulfilled in the school or they can be threatened or frustrated. So any person in school staff or educator can play an important role by the way they support the autonomy of young people. So do they see them as the, as individuals that have their own interests, values, beliefs, emotion? Do they provide a structure that will help the young people attain their goals by providing very clear and predictable rules or very clear expectations, appropriate challenges? So not too difficult or not too easy. 
And can they invest time and energy developing those caring relationships with them, getting to know them? All of these fulfill the basic psychological needs of students. So once they feel autonomous and competent and connected to others in school, students usually flourish naturally. They'll be more likely to be motivated in school, to feel well psychologically, even physically, and have more likely to have higher academic achievement as well. So they do, school staff, I would say, set a little bit the tone and how they connect with young people just by the way they see students, they talk to students, and they act with them. And that all makes total sense sort of intuitively. Mm. We've all experienced children coming home and saying, that teacher doesn't like me. And I think parents really struggle with that because, you know, what's going on there? It's It can be incredibly demotivating for a child who suddenly feels the teacher doesn't like them, you mm. know. And tell us a little bit more about what you know when the relationship is fraught and from the child's perspective, what might be going on there? What might be going on? Can you, you mean in terms of the outcomes or in terms of yes. what's happening in the classroom? So when that happens, and it's a, it can damage their engagement with learning. And, you know, it's important to sort of solve it. But what is the impact of not getting along with the teacher? I've just alluded to one outcome. Yeah, there could be many outcomes, engagement, motivation, just the types of emotion. It could be just emotions, like if you're feeling unwell, upset or sad, but it can be become more important or significant up to like behavioral or emotional difficulties that would be more like anxiety or a bit of depression. It can, I think there's a large variety of things that could happen just like emotionally, behaviorally, in terms of academic achievement. So maybe lower grades in that class if there's either less interest or not an, enough involvement to learn enough. But I think if those are repeated experiences, it could lead even to sometimes drop out because there's not that protective factor or it could become a risk factor in those instances. Yeah. We also know that everyone in education is very, very interested in behavior management in the classroom, mm. understandably. And in your experience, I know you're a great, you're very passionate about teachers developing empathy for the pupils that they work with. Why is that so important? And how is that linked to good behavior in the classroom when the teacher takes that approach? Yeah, sometimes I feel that behavior management is almost like, I don't know if it's the right analogy, but like training animals, like if we do this, then they will behave, but we're kind of forgetting everything that goes on in their heads and everything that goes on in their lives. So I think empathy is fundamental for the relationship aspect, but also for how are you going to intervene? If you don't know what's happening, what's the need behind the behavior, how are you going to be able to put any solution in place or have any plan? And I'd say all of my approaches or ways of thinking will involve thinking first, what is that child feeling? What is that child going through? Can you generate alternatives? And then you may have to ask them. You can't always read minds. So you may have to ask them, see what is going on. And then depending on what they'll say, you'll have different solutions. But it's hard to just say, do this and do that, and it will solve everything. So underlying it, if we were, if you and I were a classroom teacher working, albeit they might have 30 children in the class, it's very difficult, certainly in a secondary setting to, or a senior school setting to develop wonderful relationships with every single child that's in depth. What are your five top tips for getting along better in general with pupils before we, if things arise that are difficult, we have a better chance of actually getting through those scenarios better. So let's start with your five top tips for teachers. 
Yeah, for the, the basis, I think I would start first with the empathy aspect. Do you accept their perspectives? Do you welcome their perspectives and their opinions? So when they have a sense that they can be part of the classroom that you're setting, it's going to be much easier than to that relationship will be established. So whatever comes up will be easier to address. Can you offer opportunity for the students to act more autonomously? Do they, again, a bit, same thing, having a say in the classroom, but differently. Can they have a say in how they do their homework? Can they have a say in the schedule or the way things are done? So they feel like they're in this with you. They're not just following what you're saying all the time. And do they understand why you're asking them to do things? Do you have meaningful rationales when you ask them to do things or when you set up rules in the classroom, all of these things will help them act more autonomously because they'll know why you're asking them to do things. It's not just experience as control then. That's two. Another one would be the way we talk generally. So using more informational and non-controlling language will help. So instead of you should do this, you must do, you have to, can we use language that is more, I suggest you do this or it could be helpful to do this. So then they are the ones who are making the choices and the decisions. And for informational, it's often when we give feedback or praise. It's useful to say things that will describe what they've done well or how they've progressed. Instead of using evaluating words like you're good, your composition's perfect or things like that, then say, what did you like about the poem? What did you notice? How does it make you feel in a certain way? So I liked how you rhymed this word with this word. Your poem made me feel the emotions that this character was feeling. So they know better how to attain the goals that you're setting yeah, for them. Yeah, lovely. Uh, so the words that I've written down there when you were speaking were respect. There's a lovely sense of respect between mm. teacher and pupil there. And also a sense of democracy in the classroom as far as possible and leaning in to the lovely ideas that young people will have. So you're not you're still in control as the teacher, but you are leaning into their you're sort of reflecting how intelligent they are. You're using coaching language. You're giving them a little bit of autonomy that will feel good and lead to less resistance to any of those sorts of strategies. So that's really lovely. And I also love the sort of the using effective praise approach. That's gorgeous. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, like you're saying, you, you still need a structure. It's not because you acknowledge your perspective and emotions that you're not going to set up the structure. They're not opposites. You can always welcome what they have to say. And if in the end, you're still the one to decide what's happening, then at least you've heard them and you, you'll be able to explain also maybe why you're going a certain way. Mm. One of the things that I've realized anecdotally, like my children will always love teachers who can make them laugh. <laughs> uh, have you ever looked at that aspect of the teacher-pupil relationship? You know, just someone who makes them laughing reduces anxiety and probably helps them connect with their teacher a little bit. I think a big aspect, yeah, is the connection. But often when teachers will make students laugh, they know them a little bit or they get to know them. So they know what will make them laugh. They are showing some passion about what they're working on or, or teaching. So I think there are a lot of different things because we also know that when teachers are intrinsically motivated to teach or showing more of that internal motivation, it'll show through the way they teach and, and students will love it as well. Yeah. So I think humor also is part of that. Like <laughs> that's also anecdotally, but all the, the puns you may see from science teachers or all the little jokes like that. I mean, it does help you get into it. So do you think teachers know how powerful they are? in people's lives yeah well 
I'm not a primary school teacher or secondary school teacher. I've only taught like university students. From what I've seen and know, I know a lot of them just go in the prof- into the profession because they know either they've had the experience of having a teacher that was super important for them, or they know teachers can have such an impact on children. So I do think when they they start to go into it, they probably know the impact that they can have. I think sometimes when you once you get in the schools, there are so much other pressures to deal with that you kind of either feel your power is limited or you're unsure it could be anything from what you mentioned, the number of students in the classroom, financial pressures, not being recognized enough by society, or sometimes the work with parents is difficult. That collaboration is more difficult. So I, I think they know, like even some researchers call, uh, maybe more in primary school, but still, I, I, I'd say they're important throughout the school, that they are kind of attachment figures in the class. So that's very important, like major role for a child's life. So listen, I know that you're very interested as a psychologist in motivating children. My goodness me, that is a very important area for everyone listening. So let's talk about that. Imagine you had a very demotivated pupil in your classroom, knowing the psychology of this. What steps would you advise teachers to take to help that pupil? And how could they optimally work with the parents to support them, to support the child? So let's talk about demotivation in the classroom. Yeah, that could be tough, especially if you have a feeling that there's potential for that child and you may want to act more controllingly, sometimes shocking them. But Usually that doesn't work (laughs) and you'll you'll be more at odds with that pupil or student. So what helps as a kind of paradigm is thinking from the self-determination theory, all humans are naturally oriented towards growth. They are curious, active, social beings. So maybe remind yourself that if they're demotivated, something is happening or something has happened and we can work with it or we can work on it. And then I'll come back to the same thing. So empathy, what is happening for that child? Can you think of different hypotheses from what you've observed, but then you have to confront those observations with talking to the child or talking with their parents, depending on their age, talking to everyone at once. I think recognizing the situation without accusations or blame, kind of just describing what's happening, describing what you want. By If you're a teacher, you want them to be motivated in class, or you've noticed that they felt quite passive or depressed, whatever it is, you can name it, and then say that you want to work with them to help their child, or you want to work with them, talking you to the teen, for example, want to work with you. And then if you can maybe problem solve, simply brainstorm without judging any of those solutions. So naming all the alternatives, and then all together kind of agreeing on some of them in the second step. I think that could help. But of course, all the teaching practices that we've talked so far are going to be helpful in general. So if you want to work on your own teaching practices, but for a specific student in your classroom, it might necessitated a deeper dive to understand what's happening. Yeah, I really like your idea of brainstorming. So you don't just say, come on, you know, why are you not complying? There's a little bit of exploration, which I'm sure teachers do all that very intuitively anyway. But, you know, brainstorming with the child, what would help, what could help rather than maybe telling them or giving them ideas. So that's quite interesting. Yeah, we're solicitating that autonomy here because we want it we want them to feel like this is their life. This is your studies. So how do you want to do this? And there's probably a way that will feel better. So can we think about it together? 
Yeah, I mean, that's a beautiful template for the conversation because I think a lot of us worry about how to have the conversation with the young person. And as parents, it's so easy to berate our children. You know, why? Why are you in your bedroom? Why are you not doing your homework? I've asked you to do it. Why don't you care? What happens when we speak to young people? I understand why parents (laughs) do, but what happens inside that teenage brain when you sort of berate them in those terms? Oh, you just close off. I mean, we can even feel it as adults. If your partner would come to you, why do you never pick up the dishes? Or who left this outside? Everybody, first response will be not me, or I don't want to talk about it with you. So it's just... It closes off the conversation. It puts the teen in a defensive position that now they have to kind of convince you of why they feel this way. And then are their emotions even, are they allowed to have those emotions? Like it, it starts off the conversation on the wrong foot. Uh, and it never is the parent's intention usually to kind of bring out all those negative feelings in, the, in the, their youth or to put the conversation this way. It's just sometimes parents are, overwhelmed or they're they don't know what to do anymore and it's not I want to say it's not their fault but it it does happen this way so it does maybe need to take a moment think about it first before you have that conversation regulate your own emotions and your own expectations of your child to change a bit the mindset I do like the word observation so starting off with an observation is always very interesting rather than you do this and it makes me feel, you know, and putting them into a defensive position saying, you know, I've noticed that you seem a bit unhappy or I've noticed that you don't really want to do homework. Can you tell me a little bit more about why that is? Exactly. And I think parents, sometimes you have your own emotion. So you're anxious that your child is going to be failing. They might not be anxious to be failing. So when you say you should be anxious or you should be worried, you're not touching what they're really feeling. This is your emotion. So if you do want to express that, say, I am anxious about what is happening, not about you not doing your homework, or I am anxious, I don't know what to do to help you. These are kind of take responsibility for your own feelings and don't put them on your child, but then go see how they feel about the situation. Probably they're not happy with it either, uh, but they might not use the same words. Yeah, I love that. So you can be honest about how you're feeling, but it's not it's not the child's responsibility to sort of coach you through that, if you like. Mm. So Vanessa, for children who, you know, want to do better, we want to help them aim higher, raise aspirations. What is your general advice based on your work? I think if we can get them closer to that more internal type of motivation, so intrinsic motivation, either having fun with it or closer to their what they value or how they identify with it. So can we help them see how the learning helps their personal goals or life goals if they have certain careers in mind? Are we also promoting their autonomy? So do they feel like they're doing things for themselves and not only to have a good grade or for their parents, kind of getting more of that autonomy or responsibility, feeling in charge of of their learning will help with that perseverance or resilience when they face challenges. Yeah, depending on the type of motivational theory, if you have more of a, a growth goals or instead mastery goals instead of performance goals so that they feel like they can improve and they see that they can work on their skills instead of just it is what it is and I'm not good at math or I am very good at math, depending on how they see it. And yeah, are we promoting a context where it's okay to make mistakes and kind of try again? Are we accepting that they might feel negative? emotions sometimes and accepting that because we kind of trust that they'll be able to get through it so supporting it 
And obviously the pandemic has, uh, there has been great interest in the fact that the pandemic may have demotivated, you know, lots of children and young people. Do you feel like I do intuitively, there might there might be a boomerang effect. We might see young people suddenly embracing all the learning activities and things that are available to them. Or is there a danger that that sort of demotivation in some cases will be sustained? And they might think, what's the point? You know, exams might get cancelled or there might we might be at war, you know, and they might just give up. Yeah, there is a lot happening right now. And I think they they do need that period of kind of regaining trust that things are going to go according to plan, for example, for the pandemic. The, the war is kind of another story. Uh, but for now, can they have a little bit of taking a breath and then seeing that things are going to be more stable? I think motivation will come back because they have now more opportunities to fill or satisfy their basic psychological needs. So they'll see their friends, they'll be in school, it'll be way more motivating than it was. And like you said, they'll have more opportunities to, to fill up those needs. And I think it will increase motivation, but I do think they still need a little bit of time to breathe and kind of gain energy back for it. So that's maybe what some people are seeing. And to what extent is, I'm very interested in, you know, if we reduce children's anxiety, are we more likely to see greater motivation in learning? Is that something that would make sense for you as a psychologist? Yeah, I think anxiety can impact, depends which kind of anxiety is it specific for tests or is it social anxiety? But usually research anxiety is linked with lowering academic achievement. So it is linked. So if we can, if we can lower it, it is going to help. There is a certain level that we can't control. So that means maybe more acknowledging it, working with it, than trying to quote unquote solve it. Yeah, but it is a factor. And obviously, you've mentioned, you know, we're recording this in the midst of a very difficult situation in Europe. What is your general advice to parents about helping pupils and and for teachers manage what are very grave concerns about a very scary situation? What would be your little tips for them? Acknowledge it. Acknowledge it. If your children or students are talking about it, it has to be very open and clear that we can talk about it with the right words. If it's a war, it's a war. What does it mean? If they're really young, use, of course, age-appropriate words. It's a conflict or a country or between two country or a country. They're trying to see who's going to rule the other one. You can figure out how you're going to mention it. But it is important that they know what's happening, that they're not alone with that fear or anxiety. So whenever you talk about it, either one-on-one or in a group, they'll feel connected to others. So being connected is going to be very helpful with those emotions. So that would be like main tip. Yeah. So so it's making sure you sort of take your cue from the children, whatever tone they, if they want to talk about it, great. If they don't, maybe not so much. So you just sort of listen and, and get sort of respond intuitively. Yeah. And you can always remain open and tell them that you remain open to talking about it and that it's okay that it's not a one and done conversation because it's ongoing. So they can come back to you and if you do, I'm thinking more as a parent, you have your own emotion, acknowledge them as well. Like you're feeling sad about the situation or scared. It's okay. As long maybe you, as you can reassure them that even if mommy is scared, I'm here for you or I can still take care of you and you're safe. It's, it's still my job to take care of you. So you, it could be both things. But also, of course, you've mentioned autonomy and agency. There is so much that 
families can do for other families in difficult situations. And in fact, children are so good at giving back and being altruistic, aren't they? Yeah, that's a great antidote, I would say, for anxiety. Once you've acknowledged what's going on, what can we do? What do you want to do? You can take time to research and then decide on something that you can do. And that advice goes well with other concerns like climate changes and other anxiety-inducing events that are coming up. So you can always be involved in the group. You can always do change some habits at home and things like that that will help us have more control over our lives. So I know that within your research, you've recently been looking at parental perceptions of their teenagers and the impact these can have. Can you tell us a little bit more about the impact of parental perceptions? Yeah, well, it was very specific. I'll explain a little bit of the context of the research. So we asked teenagers, how fulfilled are you? How are your basic needs? Do you feel autonomous, competent, and connected to others? And then we asked parents, as parents, do you feel autonomous, competent, and connected to others? And then we asked parents an additional scale saying, how do you think your child is feeling? Do you think your child is autonomous and competent and connected to others? And then we looked at all of those variables over time. We were thinking initially that probably children will be the ones leading the way. So if children feel more autonomous, competent, and connected to others, then parents will think, oh, my child is feeling this way either because they saw it or they talked about it, but we've actually found the reverse. So parental perception proceeded. So when parents were saying, oh yes, my child is feeling highly autonomous, highly competent, and is highly connected to others, months later, even a year later, then children reported higher autonomy, higher competence, and higher relatedness. So we haven't exactly measured everything so we could explain the phenomenon. What we think is either kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy. So when parents see their children as highly autonomous, competent, and kind of have that trust in their children, their children kind of take it all in and internalize that. Or maybe because they're teens, they don't know themselves well enough. Do parents have just a more accurate perception of their child? We can't prove any of this. These are just hypotheses. But we thought it was very interesting, even for intervention, that we need to take into account parents' perception of their child, or at least those are good ideas for future interventions. And also interesting if there's a mismatch between parents thinking, I would assume a lot of parents would underestimate you know, mm. their, their children's abilities or their children's levels of self-confidence. So that's quite interesting, isn't it? Well, yeah, because it could go from the relationship that we find it could go, it could lower over time your child's perception of autonomy, competence and connectedness to others. So it would be important to think about what we perceive or even how the message comes across. But we don't know exactly the, how the transmission goes. So what we do know already, don't we, from existing research that, for example, maternal confidence, when that's high, children are much more likely to be confident. So there is sort of existing research pointing at that sort of that that self-confidence in parents can have a direct impact on their children. Yeah, I think also for like, like specific competence, like sports competence, things like that, they did show it. But it's, it's hard to know then, do we just tell parents to believe that? Or are there other practices that they could implement in everyday life to support that either confidence or autonomy, competence and relatedness? Yeah. So when will that research actually be published with its findings? Oh, it's coming along. <laughs> we have to resubmit the paper. It's online now, but as a preprint, so it's, it hasn't been reviewed by peers, but it, it's coming along hopefully this year. 
Brilliant. And what other exciting projects are you working on now, Vanessa? Well, I want to continue working on teacher's empathy. So I, I would love to start a project where I could see how teachers do it in real life. How does that empathy transmit in real life? Are there facilitators or obstacles within the classroom that we should take into account? And I would love to create a, a workshop in collaboration with educators to promote that empathy in the classroom. I don't know yet how I'm going to do it because I haven't had the funding, but if it comes to it, I would love to do that. And then other things that I'm working on are collaborations on the side about teens' values. So but when they have more intrinsic values of like community relationships or personal growth, what is that impact on their well-being or are values stable over adolescence? So all of these things I'm also interested in. Wow, it sounds fascinating. <laughs> so listen, hopefully we'll have you back on our podcast to tell us more about this interesting work around empathy. Hope. But in the meantime, how can people follow your work online? Online, uh, for now, uh, just I think Google Scholar and ResearchGate is going to be the best way. It's a bit difficult to journey just because I'll be between institutions. But they can always follow the self-determination theory website if they're interested in that particular type of uh, information and science. So are you moving between universities at the minute? My University of Reading funding ends end of March. And then I don't know, I might be, I applied for a fellowship in Japan. So we'll see if I get there. Also interested in parenting practices there. Wow. Fascinating. So listen, stay in touch with us and thank you for joining us and all the very best. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure to talk about these practices with you. Thank you. This Get a Grip podcast is brought to you by Tooled Up Education, the home of evidence-based tips on parenting, family life and education www.tooledupeducation.com. Parents and teachers in Tooled Up schools can also access notes accompanying each podcast available to read and download from the Tooled Up site.